Hey everybody, welcome back to Starlog Origins. This is Alex Salas, and as you know, this is the podcast in which we take a look at history and what lessons can we learn from the past to improve our practice today in learning and development, corporate training, and everything we do to help people do a better job in their jobs. So today is a very good episode. We're going to discuss psychometrics. And I'm pretty sure I'll figure out the title of this episode based on my conversation with this awesome guest. But uh, the guest today is Dr. Nathan Thompson. Nathan, do me a favor. Tell us a little bit about your background. Welcome to the podcast. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Nathan Thompson. I'm originally from small town, Wisconsin, uh, and uh, went to college at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, where I was originally a psychology major. And I ended up... Uh, becoming sort of disillusioned with the fluffier side of psychology uh like uh, personality theories uh and got really interested in how to be as quantitative and scientific as possible uh so i got into psychometrics uh i picked up a math major as an undergrad and i went and got a phd in psychometrics at uh, university of minnesota with professor david weiss who's regarded as one of the fathers of uh adaptive testing and the use of machine learning and adaptive or uh, artificial intelligence within the world of education and uh, workforce assessment. Ooh, and okay. since since then, uh, I've been dedicated to providing software tools that make it easier to provide that level of technology to organizations. Uh, you know, there's a machine learning approach that psychometricians called item response theory. Um, there's a good bit of uh, artificial intelligence within the world of psychometrics, like automated essay scoring and adaptive testing. Um, and I provide software tools and the consulting needed for organizations to build exams at the same level of, you know, the big exams like IELTS or SAT, uh, be able to build those exams yourself. Wow. That's awesome. Well, so I guess, you know, based on all that you said, uh, Nathan, you can say that, uh, you're my brother from another mother. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you. I don't have all the degrees, but I love the fact that you said, you know, a lot of fluffiness out there and that's really motivation for a lot of things I do is to kind of bring some clarity for all the professionals out there. So let me ask you this question, because I know and you mentioned some very interesting stuff that's also very relevant to corporate training, which is, uh, you know, it hasn't really been practiced in a lot of places, but it should be the way of the future, which is uh, adaptive testing and some of the things you mentioned with machine learning and whatnot. But um, let's start with a basic conversation here because there's a lot of confusion. And I mean, when I did this research and I went back and look at things back to, tracing back to 1869 or 18, early 1800s, you, we had this confusion where psychometrics or psychometry um, that had a different meaning. So like I was telling you prior to starting the recording here, like psychometry is some kind of thing where <laughs> People saw, you know, I don't know, uh, spectral energies and kind of like paranormal investigations and stuff like that. And then you have psychometrics and psycho psychometric testing. Um, so what is the actual name of the profession per se? Is it psychometry? Is it psychometrics? What is it? Uh, it's psychometrics. So I think psychometry, if you were to Google that, still exists as the whole, you know, supernatural kind of thing, um, okay. measuring the supernatural. Well, I uh, me. Psychometrics. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, psychometrics is the study of uh, human assessment, you know, trying to quantify aspects of humans in a psychological or educational perspective. Mm. Uh, you know, it's easy to quantify things in terms like weight or height. 
it's a lot harder to quantify things like personality or intelligence or whether you know enough about uh, surgery to practice as a surgeon. Hmm. Um, it's really the same problem when you get down to it for different types of assessment like that. So psychometrics often doesn't care about the type of assessment we're working on. We care about the process of building an assessment, how to analyze the data, how to validate the assessment, how to build some algorithms into it if it's being delivered adaptively or any other way like that. Um, so psychometricians will often even jump between uh, parts of the field. You know, they might start off working at a K-12 assessment company, then they go might go work on a medical certification, then they got, might go work at a large uh, company where they're working with free employment or training selection tests. Mm, okay, okay. That, yeah, that brings some clarity to things. So thank you for that. And uh, I guess I'll have to go, you know, I'm, I'm half Cuban. Um, I'm a mud and like half Venezuelan Cuban and, and I've been living here for over 30 years. But, um, um, but you know, psychometry, I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> Bring a coconut out, some chicken, blood. No, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> so we have... So let, let me ask you, I mean, we're, we're going to touch later on this guy again, but I, as I'm I'm looking at the first sort of, sort of like, you know, we, I was a, we can call it great grandfather of uh, psychometric stuff is Sir Francis Galton. I'm seeing him at 1869, 1879. He wrote a couple of papers where he basically said that he walked around uh, Paul Mall or something. I guess this guy's from England too, right? Mm -hmm. So he walked around, um, his, his method was to walk some distances from different areas, look at objects, and then do some association of ideas for those objects, and then kind of track in itself, you know, for himself, like what he did remember or whether that made sense or not. So is that, is that accurate or not? Or does that make sense to you? Or is, was it part of your studies or anything? Yeah, he was certainly one of the first ones. Uh, those psychometricians will often say that the practice of psychometrics goes back 2,000 years mm. um, to ancient China, um, and they oh. were the first ones to do it yeah. uh, because they had high-stakes civil service exams. You know, not too different from what we do now in terms of civil service exams, where you got to go take a test on you know knowledge of laws and intelligence and things like that. Um, they did that back then too. They also tested you on knowledge of Confucianism and things like that. Not as useful these days, um, but they were trying to do the same thing. Um, I mean, Confucianism probably still works today, right? That's what people get confused about the... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> dad jokes. Those are free folks. Those yeah, dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the Western world, Francis Galton was one of the first ones, you know, that tried to start quantifying these things. He wasn't going down the right path there, but he was trying to, you know, use observation measurements to discern patterns about people, you know, like, you know, what kinds of things are associated with different types of personality or different types of intelligence. Okay. Um, so you're right. You're completely, you know, well, I'm not going to tell you you're right. You're the expert. But what I'm saying is, <laughs> um, yeah, the the source, the same source I'm sharing with that I shared with you in the beginning, the book by uh, these three folks, uh, your favorite folks. What are the names again? <laughs> yeah. Mikhail Kwasinski, John Rust, and David Stillwell. Um, who yeah, are those guys, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were all at the uh, University of Cambridge Psychometric Center, though uh, Michal has uh, moved to Stanford University in the U.S. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and the time he, in this book, which is excellent, I recommend for anybody who wants, wants to kind of learn about the stuff, uh, Modern Psychometrics, the Science of Psychological Assessment. 
interesting book uh the link is available in the in the description of the episode and you can also catch it on the newsletter the linkedin newsletter that we publish every sunday okay cool yeah th that note about the the chinese uh dynasty stuff is there my question to you are you is there anything in there that you're still using that you still use today or you're like eh, we're cool yeah the general idea of it is the same and that we're trying to test people on relevant job knowledge um and use that to you know predict job performance uh, and in the corporate world a lot of it is still the same thing okay cool so let's talk about that because that that's interesting i think i've taken some of this test before which is like they're trying to uh and I, it probably it in the technical terms does that fall into like the cattell 16 factor factor analysis or something like that or does that make sense or you know, yeah, there's a lot trying, of factor analysis that goes into it. Yeah, you're trying to you're trying to identify that you know uh, this guy's probably going to steal all our office supplies, right? Or, <laughs> or <laughs> you will be yeah. an honest employee, or you're not going to be an honest employee. Um, yeah, they one, even have a term for that. It's uh, counterproductive work behavior. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. The, the marketing label is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Counterproductive. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I think at one, at one time I was getting a job and I, I ran into one of these uh, tests and he was asking things like that. Like, you see a you see a work a workmate or, you know, you see a, a teammate uh, grab supplies, take them home. What do you do? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> but let me ask you this question then. So that type of testing, how are you able to predict anything? Is it because I, the one thing I noticed that from an uneducated perspective is that you do tend to repeat it's almost like a liker scale first of all and then you tend to repeat the questions so in a different format or some a different way right so like you may ask in the first the first instance you would ask like uh you know people people make you bad every time or some of the time or, or whatever and then later on uh you know 20 questions later <laughs> you'll come mm -hmm. back and say when people do things, you feel mad or somewhat mad or whatever. So how does that work exactly? How do you, how do you figure out, okay, yeah, this is the chance. This is the probability that this guy is not going to be a good fit. Uh, what they do is they try to correlate it to uh, uh, dependent variables or criteria uh, that the organization thinks is important. Mm, okay. So, yeah, and they'll do that to validate an assessment or really a set of assessments. So, you know, they might get started by taking a thousand people, giving them this personality assessments, you know, a logical reasoning test, a quantitative reasoning test, what other types of things they ever want to assess. Um, and then they hire those people and then they correlate their data on the tests with their job performance ratings from their supervisors six months from now, mm. or whether they're still with the company two years from now, um, or, or, or whatever else it is that they want to predict. And it's the exact same thing with um, university admissions, actually. You know, they test you on logical reasoning, mathematical reasoning, verbal reasoning, whatever it is that they want to test you on. And they're actually correlating that data with whether you drop out after the first year or what is your GPA after four years, you know, those types of things um, that are uh, indicators of success at college. Mm. Um, so it's not just like they're looking at these questions individually. You know, they are uh, scientifically trying to validate these things. Uh, the problem is that, of course, universities don't accept everybody and companies don't hire everybody. 
Right. Uh, so they have a problem that's called range restriction. You know, they'll often only hire the top half up from that scored on the exam. Um, there's statistical ways you can adjust for that, but they're still trying to make this as scientific and statistical as possible. Mm. So is that, and this is a curiosity that I have then. So what's the label for the for the human factor then? You know, the, like you may take the test and you may see like, oh, these people may be the best fit, but they, yet they pick somebody else. So what do you call that, that human factor? <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, there is something that's uh, called job person fit. Oh. Um, or, you know, like company culture person fit, mm. uh, where they're looking for organiz uh, people that have certain leadership qualities or, you know, something like that on the personality side. And they don't just want to select them on their knowledge of Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel or, you know, harder things like that. Okay. I, I, it's harder, not in the sense of difficulty, but as in uh, more job knowledge related. So I'm seeing here that probably around 1906, maybe the turn of the century, you had France kind of do this type of exit examinations. It gave you the Bennett-Simon scales, that the 30 scales of Bennett-Simon, which in English became the Stanford Bennett. Is that, is that, is that used at all in what you do, or it's just, that's pretty much like special education now uh, sort of used, that type of assessment? Yeah, uh, Binet was certainly one of the forerunners of the field in that he was trying to assess, you know, educational aptitudes of students. And the basic idea of what he's doing is still around today in terms of IQ testing. Um, he was also really the inventor of adaptive testing because, you know, he'd like give a seven-year-old a seven-year-old level question. If they got it right, he'd give them an eight-year-old level question. Uh, if they got it right, he'd give them a nine-year-old level question. Okay. Um, and that's how he figured out like their mental age versus their chronological age. And the original concept of IQ was the ratio of your mental age to chronological age. There's a different scale now, but that was originally what he was trying to get at. Oh, okay. um, and that whole approach is still used often when you're talking about like working with school kids as a school psychologist, you know, they do IQ tests and other that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it's it departed somewhat different when you're talking about the corporate world, the workforce world. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, so then, and and then I want to say this, right? Like for everybody listening, so if you if you know the difference between people they know what they're talking about and people that don't know what they're talking about, is when you listen to Nate. See, he knows what he's talking about. So it's like <laughs> making up crap. He's like telling you straight up. Well, yeah, this is what happened. This was up. So that's great. Appreciate that, man. I appreciate it. So. This then takes a close uh, approximation to my thing, because, you know, like I told you before, I'm a U.S. Navy vet and the Army then introduces alpha beta testing in World War One. Right. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I think it, the, the process in that was the uh, alpha testing. And, and I want to clarify for the folks today, because Gen Z is probably gonna be like alpha. No, man. Like, cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, it's not a type of alpha. Chill. So <laughs> we're talking about alpha testing was for people that were literate so they can they can classify the draftees and then uh, beta were people that were not literate so illiterate people that couldn't read or had different languages but it's basically to clap to um I, I have it here it says it's, it's pretty impressive because it was the apa right that was sort of contracted for this the american uh, psychological association And uh, it's that, uh, I got this quote here, it says that the entire process was completed in less than six months. By the end of the war, this test, known as the Ar Army Alpha and Army Beta, have been administered at the rate of 200,000 per month. 
to nearly 2 million American recruits. Uh, following the popularity of the success of the Army test, the mantle for mass testing for an IQ or the quotient was taken up by the College Board, the U.S. College Board, and that led us to the 1926 introduction of the Scholastic Aptitude Test or the SAT. Mm-hmm. So interesting, right? So before 1926, how how were you getting to college? Like. You're white and you're rich. Well, yeah. <laughs> that was certainly part of it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but um, the, it was really a financial uh, decision of what the College Board did there. You know, before then, a lot of colleges were building their own entrance exams, and mm. they were doing it in non-standardized ways, like just having people write essays, right? Mm. So they said, you know, hey, let's get together, make a standardized aptitude test. Um, and we'll save a lot of money by making only one instead of, you know, 200 of us each making our own. Um, And that's really where the SAT came out of. Um, And of course, by pulling their resources, they were able to do a lot better job um, and make it a lot more standardized, have a score scale that meant the same, whether you were from Massachusetts or where you're from Arkansas or where you're from Idaho. Um, And that's really the usefulest of uh, exams like that today, not just in the admissions world, but in other types of assessments too, like you can take an English language assessment anywhere in the world. And it's been benchmarked against, you know, moving to the UK or moving to America. Um, and they, they, it's that same idea of wanting to have a common scale that provides, you know, meaningful information about it. And that comes down to the whole purpose of psychometrics, which is to provide meaningful information about people that can be used to make decisions. Okay. Um, you know, the, the, the quote here kind of says that Harvard and University of California were the first ones to adopt it. And by 1940, Pretty much every other university kind of jumped on the wagon here. So, yeah. the, the do you have any recollection as to where does the GRE starts the graduate? Um, you know, I think it was a graduate records examination. The people that you know that can, I guess that's the test you take. That's the one that I've seen. If you're going to go do a doctorate or a master's degree. You take the GRE and it seems to be a good predictor of academic success in institutions. I find it to be quite, I don't know, I'm, I got questions about it, but um, how do you feel about the GRE? Because to me it's a pain butt. <laughs> I got to go yeah. back and study algebra again. Come on, man. <laughs> so it's the same thing. Uh, you know, it's the same concept of wanting to have a common score scale to help, uh, you know, admit you know, people into graduate school. And, you know, it certainly goes back a long ways because I know my dad took it when he applied for his master's in teaching, like 1979 or something. Um, so it's certainly been around for a while. Okay. Um, and they're trying to make it a little more specific, you know, because like, you know, you, they recognize that just algebra knowledge probably isn't the best predictor of graduate school success. So that's why they added subject tests. So, you know, I took it to go into grad school in psychology. So yes, I took the verbal reasoning and algebra reasoning section, but I also took a psychology specific test. Oh, okay. Um, and they have psychology or various subject tests for that sort of thing, chemistry, physics, whatever it else it is you want to go into. Oh. And then there's the GMAT, uh, which is the same thing as the GRE, but specifically built for MBA programs. Oh, okay. Yeah, correct. Cool. Well, so we're getting into the juicy part of the episode where we, you know, I promise you guys it will be all history, but here's the thing. We're going to wrap up the history and then get into the applications of today what happens today exactly and and how do we bring it into corporate test uh corporate training and whatnot so 
I, I was telling you before the episode where we discussed kind of like the, the, the conversation here, uh, Nathan, that I found this interesting. There was some kind of the, the book calls the dark period because we go back to our boy, you know, Dalton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he was actually the a, a major because of this whole testing thing that he was doing. He was a major proponent of eugenics, like the notion of, hey, we're going to pass you're, you're, you're dumb, so your kids are going to be dumb, so we need to sterilize you. Basically, that's what, what it came down to. <laughs> so, and, and it was implemented, you know, in, in Europe and in the United States. And we're, we're here in Black History Month, and it was part of that as well, as well as Native Americans were also sterilized without their knowledge. This whole thing, even in prisons, happened. So, I mean, it has very strong ramifications, heavy impact. Ended around 1981, and then we see Flynn coming around in 1984, kind of getting into the adaptive, you know, abilities testing. So rather than you know, oh, your 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 IQ is not going to be good because you're cleaning floors type of thing. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, something to kind of deal with. I mean, we go from this area of testing, and then we get into this dark period. Um, coming out of that, then. And, and Flynn's uh, abilities testing, there's mention of Garner's, you know, multiple intelligence, the whole discussion of different intelligences and stuff like that. How does that stand in your, in the Sacramento practice? This whole thing of multiple intelligence, Garner's theory, because I've seen uh, recently uh, Jordan Peterson talking about it and going like, what is that? Nah, there's only one intelligence. <laughs> so, <laughs> so tell me what, what kind of position is that or what kind of testing you guys do to kind of figure that out? Okay. Yeah, there certainly was a lot of quackery back, you know, 100, 150 years ago, but there was, you know, with so many other things, you know, I just went to the Minnesota Science Museum with my son last weekend and they had a quackery section. Oh. Uh, yeah, you know, people that were selling radioactive drinks in the 1920s and that sort of thing because they said it was good for your health. But, you know, some guy got so much cancer that his jaw fell off because <laughs> he drank so much radioactive water. Um yeah, it's so it certainly wasn't lim- limited to psychometrics and psycho- uh, psychometry and psychology, um, but there absolutely was affected within the field in that they were trying to use psychometric uh, assessments in a wrong way. And it really, you know, ended up being an excuse for doing certain bad things, you know, just like redlining in finan- the financial world um, for real estate was being used for bad things. Okay. Um, and you know, we certainly tried to move away from that now. And now there's a lot of research that goes into trying not to be biased. Um, so there's a, a branch of psychometrics called differential item functioning, uh, which is devoted to looking to see if questions are biased. Oh, okay. Different. Um, What's that again? Differential? Differential item functioning. Because it means that a question functions different for blacks than it does for whites or Hispanics than it does for whites. Okay. Um, it doesn't even have to be a skin color thing. It can just be a cultural thing. Um, or uh, area of the country thing. You know, when I was in grad school, I worked part-time writing questions for the state of Alaska's K-12 exams, you know, and, uh, you know, pretty much everyone there is white, but they said there's huge bias possibilities when you're talking about people that have, you know, never been to a mall. Uh, so you can't write a question about going to the mall and buying CDs like you would for people in the lower 48, because that would be totally biased for people in Alaska. Oh, um, same as uh, you probably want to ask about elk and moose and georgia when <laughs> <laughs> exactly so instead they told you to write questions you know like if you want to run a math question talk about a herd of moose or a herd of wolves and how many get killed and that sort of thing yeah um that you know they 
they're trying to make it less biased towards them. But the same thing goes on for racial assessment now too. Um, and it, it also, there's a lot of work that goes into the use of assessments, because that's really where a lot of the bias took place, not just in the development of assessment, the questions. Um, so there was uh, like what's called the Uniform uh, Rules for Using Employment Assessments, which came out in 1979, I think, as a US government publication. Uh, talked a lot about fairness. Um, there were some early court cases back in the civil rights area that were really important. Um, that says you couldn't use biased assessments. You had to actually validate them because uh, they were, again, they were trying to give intelligence tests to keep people out of good jobs. But really, it ended up being like, are you rich and are you white? Mm. Um, government came in and said, nope, you can't do that. Um, so sure. there's, it's now there's research on how's the best way to quantify those things. You know, how do we figure out if this test really is measuring intelligence and predicting job performance, or is it just reflecting whether you're rich or white? All right. So listen, that's fascinating stuff, man. I really appreciate you coming in and kind of shedding some light on this, giving the true knowledge of things. I'm just looking at things for a few hours, to, you know, looking at books and a couple of articles out there and from Google Scholar to the archives. This is to me is like, wow, this is fantastic. Because I always had that question. It's like, where does the SAT come from? And now we know. Now we know it's your fault, Nathan. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was just looking for a job, right? <laughs> <laughs> so let's get down to this piece now, which is the relevant piece in corporate training, which is like, okay, there seems to be a couple of things. Here's the elephant in the room, obviously. Meyer Briggs. What are the problems with Meyer Briggs? Because a lot of people, there's a documentary on Netflix. There's this, that, but guess what? I've seen corporate training directors, VPs or whatever, spend tens of thousands, if not a hundreds of thousands, because I don't even know how much it will cost to license it, but thousands, right? Of dollars on this stuff to do what? Like, what are you doing with MyerScript? And is it valid? Is it real? Is it is it something people should be spending money? That's just it. There certainly has been a lot of money that has gone into validating it and developing the MyerScript, but probably more money being gone into selling it. Um, psychometricians generally refer to personality types in general, not just my spring specifically, very poorly. Um, you know, they're not really uh, supported within the uh, field, especially when you're talking about the workforce uh, field. Okay. Okay. So but, that's, populated. that's a good one. Strengths Finder falls into the same thing? Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of them are There's good for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to get in trouble, but this is very interesting. This is a good thing. I just need your professional opinion and stuff. And, you know, again, if you can always, uh, at the end, you can give me resources and links to go, you know, kind of let people go see that what the real thing is or whatever the case. If you shouldn't use Myers-Briggs and you shouldn't use Finder to do pretty much anything on that, anything with it, what should you use? Uh, there's tons of research on this, as you can expect, because it's a really big, important pet question that could save billions of dollars to uh, organizations. And what's the question? Uh, it is, what are the best tests to use to predict job performance or to hire people? All right. And it's not personality types. Um, it's, uh, you know, job knowledge. Um, in some cases, intelligence, but usually something specific like quantitative reasoning skills. Um, there, it is situational judgment tests, uh, which try to get at, you know, softer skills like customer service, um, or even like encounters. If you're trying to hire police officers, you have a, a video of a, an encounter with a, 
you know, pull over a, a car and the police yeah. officer has questions about it. Very specific job knowledge, situational judgment test. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and then really right. specific non-cognitive tests. So instead of personality types that you're talking about integrity, uh, conscientiousness, counterproductive work behavior, they're trying to predict those types of things as well. Um, you, you mentioned giving some references. The classical reference here is Hunter and Schmidt. Um, and that was updated by Sackett at IL. Um, Sackett's a professor at the University of Minnesota. He just published one like, I don't know, 12 months ago, looking at all the research in the past 40 years of what are the things to, that best predict job performance and what you should be using to hire people. Hmm, I'm going to be look, taking a look into that. That's going to be a blog article. That's for sure. Thank you. Wow, that's awesome. That's, that's good info. So those should be the tests so if is we talked about myers-briggs we talked about strengths finders um then what is you mentioned something and i, I was trying to get into it i think because uh, I, <laughs> i didn't make a note duh. uh but the the tests that were that were being done uh so the tests that should be done as you were mentioning are pretty much like so those ability tests in a way right like kind of like predictors of integrity and that type of thing like um i mean technically i'm not giving you the technical terms obviously because looking at your face right now it's not <laughs> <laughs> but but i get what you're saying that makes sense so and how does that benefit then in that perspective you're able to do what with those with the results of those tests uh well they tend to predict uh positively the things that you want to have happen in jobs like higher supervisor ratings, staying longer with the company. Um, and they also negatively predict the things that you want to negatively predict, like uh, recidivism or you know stealing from the company. Uh, so that's why they do ask questions like, you see somebody stealing from the office, what do you do? Do you report them to the manager or whatever? Because you know, that's, it's easy to cheat that kind of question, but it still ends up being a predictor because there are people that answer no to those questions. Okay. Um, but the... Uh, you know, uh, you know, we talked about the alpha and beta tests. The U.S. Department of Defense, of course, is one of the biggest spenders in the world. Um, they've invested a lot of money over the last 10, 15 years trying to make uncheatable personality assessments to be used for selecting people into the military. Oh, okay. Any success in that? It's still questionable. I talked to some friends at the Air Force <laughs> a couple months ago. <laughs> uh, of course, and, I guess. It's it's Air Force does. <laughs> <laughs> a little air force joke for my air force friends <laughs> so <laughs> so listen okay that that's that's good stuff here i i got back the idea that we're talking about you mentioned situational assessments which is great because that it really i came to that through parallel thinking i had no idea what you know <laughs> you just mentioned it and i'm like yeah i had this idea before because i had the conversation with somebody about i just did a post on linkedin actually where i said like you know Why are we still rating people on years of experience? You know, because experience could be, I saw Thorndike doing some studies back in 1938 on adult education. And Thorndike was an educational psychologist. I don't know if you guys hit that or not, or, you know, because you may or may not be related with it. But he, um, basically, the study, you know, you can spend, you could be three years doing something every day, and that's better experience than being 10 years where you just do the same thing and, and not really evolve from the practice, not improve the practice. So the situational assessment, I was questioning the reasoning of behavioral questions. So why is, is behavioral interviewing 
effective or more effective than actually doing a situational assessment, which I think is more effective. Tell me what that, what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm not aware of the specific research on that. It'd be something that would be good to compare. You know, they both certainly are trying to get at the same thing of predicting future behaviors. Okay. That's what you're wanting to do with um, right. job selection, right? So behavioral, so, right. So behavioral questioning doesn't come from psychometrics? Yeah, it's it comes more from, you know, traditional, you know, job interviewing, which has been around forever, right? Oh, um, so it's not really like science-based. Yeah, they're, they're trying to make it more science-based, which is what they're getting to what's called structured interviews versus unstructured interviews. Uh-huh. You know, the research certainly says that unstructured interviews are not very predictive of job performance. Use structured interviews where you've got like specific behavioral questions that you're asking, things like that. Okay, so the discussion that I had, the, the, the argument that I have with that is saying, okay, when you do a, a behavioral, especially in an interview, right? A behavioral question, you're looking, you're asking the person at the past, but I think the problem is that they're not really asking a question. It's a poorly formatted question. And that's where we're going to get now into the formatting of questions or writing, which is, tell me about a time where you had a difficult situation. What do you do? You know, and I was like, okay, well, I can make stuff up if I wanted to on that, right? It was like, yeah, when I was working here, I did this, I did that, and it was great, right? Um, wouldn't that, you know, I don't see that as effective as a situational thing, which I don't know what you're going to put in front of me. You're just going to say, hey, watch this video, or hey, here's a problem. Your teammate did this. What will be your reaction? You know what I mean? Because now it's like, ah, okay. Um, let me think, you know? Yeah, you're exactly getting at what they're trying to do there. Instead of leaving an open-ended question, like tell me about you know, a difficult situation, they create a difficult situation so that it's the same for everybody being interviewed or taking the assessment. Okay, so that's what the structure click, uh, kicks in. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you've got a, a video of a difficult customer coming into the store and you're hiring store managers. You know, that's a very specific job-related thing that they need to deal with, right? Yeah, it's it, it, it comes to the essence that, you know, in the transition of instructional design, the most effective practice that we have is the application of systems uh, approach to training, which mm-hmm. was developed for the military back in the 60s uh, from and and basically it's task based it's, it's addressing the job task rather than, you know, uh, some kind of, oh, what we what do you do in the past? Because you're surely going to do it again, you know, that type of thing. Um, so we covered the, the personality stuff. Now it's the, the big question, which a lot of people that listen to this may be instructional designers, formatting questions. We see this practice and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put some practices out there. I'm going to ask you, okay, is that legit? Is that not legit? Or okay, you, you can let me know. But basically what it is, is like, okay, that a poor, you know, writing a question stem, right? So writing the stem, um, you want to avoid things that hint to the question. And I think this is pretty much narrow down to multiple choice questions so it's kind of like saying hey um what is the best choice for doing push-ups and then you know you got four options and the one option says uh not doing push-ups like this and okay now you're giving me the word this in the stem with the option there so people do the elimination process and they can pick the right you know they can guess the right question that type of format that's kind of like the science the not science but let's say the formula behind it does that hold is that how you guys look at setting up questions like how you build a stem 
Uh, should a stem be an open-ended question or should it just be a statement? When does that apply better? Yeah, there certainly are guidelines and psychometricians generally do agree that these types of things are good things to abide by. Um, there's a researcher, uh, Tom Heladina in Arizona, who's uh, uh, published a number of books specifically on how to develop and validate multiple choice questions because it's that specific and that big of a problem there. And it is really important. There's a group called NCCA, which is, you imagine all the certification exams that we have, accountants, lawyers, that sort of thing. They all got together and made a group of guidelines and goes into what makes a good job certification exam. Um, and one of them is that you have an item writing guide and a psychometrician has trained your item writers on to use it so that you have standardized formats of item writes. Oh, okay. Okay. So in terms of creating a good question, do you prefer, I've seen the research where, you know, they suggest that certain stamps, certain, certain way that you write the stamp is better for reading comprehension versus mathematical analytic type of uh, quantitative approaches. What is the difference there? Or how do you approach that? Uh, yeah, it's so certainly... I'll give you an, I'm sorry, I didn't give you an example. So let me give you an example. The example would be sort of, sort of like, uh, people think that the best way to wake up is, so it's not really a question. It's more like a, you know, it's a partial part of the sentence or something, and then you have to complete it with whatever else. So what is that called? What do you call that? How's that work? Uh, well, you know, one thing that's often within item writing guidelines, and there are, you know, public ones out there, like the National Board of Medical Examiners, who does the medical exams in the U.S. Oh, okay. They, they publish their item writing guidelines on their website for everyone to see. Great. Um, and it includes stuff like this, you know, because you don't want wishy-washy language within the question. You don't want extraneous information that just makes people confused. Uh, you want to make sure that you have good grammar, um, that it's concise, that you don't have too high of a reading level. Uh, all those things go into uh, writing a question, and they are certainly relevant. Okay. So one one thing, and this will be probably the last question as we're wrapping up, is one thing that I know that I have contention with is that some of the practices seen out there, people make a course, right? Let's say for compliance or whatever the case, like maybe sexual har sexual harassment prevention or cybersecurity, stuff like that. And the remedy is like they make a course and then they maybe do a quiz. And the quiz may be 10 questions, maybe 20 questions at the most. It's because they have sort of a, you know, uh, sort of an apprehension of saying, well, we're wasting people's time with a quiz or, you know, with this type of question or task or whatever. So is it, what is the, what is a, a good sample number, let's say, of test items to really measure things? And it, are we only measuring cognitive ability when we do a test? Well, you not only measure cognitive ability, especially if you take good care to make sure that you know, the items are not all written too confusingly or at too high a level of language and things like that. Okay. Um, it, the instructional designers and everyone should still make sure to focus on whatever it is that they're trying to uh, have people learn about, whether it's, you know, workplace diversity or something else, hmm. or, you know, how to use a certain piece of equipment. Um, on the first part of your question, uh, you certainly want to uh, focus on building a good exam and, uh, yeah, it, it can come down to having a job task analysis to define it, and uh, test length certainly goes into it as well. And psychometricians will tell you that the recommended test length depends upon how high stakes your exam is. 
you know, 20 items could be plenty for giving a quiz after they completed some diversity training, right? But 20 items is not enough to certify that your knee surgeon was qualified. Mm. Um, and, you know, there have been researchers uh, that have looked into how many questions in an exam lead to what level of reliability. Reliability is the word that psychometricians use for statistical consistency or quality of the scores that are coming out of the exam. Okay. Um, and in, in many cases, it, having those shorter tests are okay because you just you know want to make sure somebody has paid attention. If it's you know not something that's really really important, like selecting people for a high stakes job, um, it, then you know 10, 20 items is probably okay. Okay. So on a regular basis, when you're doing this type of exams for like jock predictability and stuff like that, you're looking at probably what 50, 100 items. Yeah, usually you know they're doing. You're yeah. doing it as a pro, right? Like, like you, like you doing it, right? It's 50, 100, 150 items or something. Yep. I've seen exams that go two, 300 items long. Wow. You know, because they're, you know, they're trying to cover everything that people have learned in four years of college or something like that. It's a lot to cover. Okay. And so, <laughs> and then, and then for me, then the last thing is, uh, what about frequency? Because I think it, in terms of, I think what a lot of people aim at and what I, I tend to um, allude before, I said cognitive ability, but really what I was tapping into was recall, right? So like retrieval, as they call it, retrieval practice. So my contention of this and my observation is that you need several bouts of this quiz or test to really, you know, cement that knowledge in there or like reinforce that knowledge in a way they're taking that quest once after you took a course that's not gonna you know that's basically it's almost like a data point that you're getting from the for the designer but it's not really doing much for the learner what do you think about that? is that too strong a statement no you're absolutely right um and it, it's good not to just wait for the end in many cases you know i have a friend who works in the k-12 world and her work has been uh, sh you know, showing that it's not a good idea just to have a benchmark exam at the end of the year to see if you've learned sixth grade math, right? You know, give these shorter exams throughout the year, make sure that the student's on track, that they're learning, then they can get personalized feedback from the, the teacher. You know, assessment doesn't have to be a high stakes thing. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be a stressful thing. It's about providing useful information about people. And in a lot of these cases, it's like, you know, giving good feedback to somebody or here's what you need to study to go to the next module. Um, or here's what you need to learn to be successful in your job because you're already 90% of the way there, right? Um, so having those these types of things is a good thing to have. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm glad to uh, glad to find that I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you uh, doing this episode just to really bring light to everybody else here to let you guys know. I don't know, Nathan. I just met him today. We connected on LinkedIn. And he was gracious enough to say, sure, let's do it, uh, because he believes in the same principles that we all should have, which is, you know, let's let's do accurate information based on science and and based on what we know the evidence to be, not not just narrative. So once again, Nathan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being in the episode. Uh, let everybody know what is it that you do today. Here's your time to plug in. Uh, what do you do for companies and large companies in, in terms of your business? Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, so I'm a CEO of Assessment Systems, and we provide software to build and deliver high-quality exams and consulting services that go with it, such as 
know, helping you develop item banks, doing a job task analysis, define what should be on the exam in the first place and those sorts of things. Mm. Um, we do a lot of work in uh, employment sector uh, clients. We have our California Department of Human Resources, uh, civil service exams for the country of Colombia, that sort of thing. We also do a lot in education, like admissions testing and certification exams, like exams to become a chiropractor. Awesome. So listen up, folks. You know what it is. This has been Style of Origins, another great episode. We dealt with psychometrics, psychometric testing, and you can find the links for uh, Nathan's uh, profile and also uh, assessment systems in the episode and also in our newsletter. It comes out Sunday. This has been Style of Origins again, and we'll see you next week, or you can hear us next week. Bye-bye.